What's up, guys? Rachel Lindsay here, and I am teaming up with your favorite Ringer podcasters to deliver the Bravo drama and news that you've been craving on Morally Corrupt. It's the show about all things Bravo, from the housewives to summer house and everything in between. We'll be mentioning it all every week. Check it out on Spotify and TheRinger.com. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Pondering the Bagel with Tom. Oh, the paradox of the bagel. Tis crunchy yet soft. Tis filling yet has a hole. Tis a vehicle for spreads, but only travels from toaster to plate. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello, and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com, and joining me on the other line, the only Grand Inquisitor he acknowledges is from Brothers Karamazov, it's Andy Greenwald! Let's go, Obi-Wan! You're so punchy today, I love this. I love this energy from you. It's the Sunshine Boys! Is that us? Yeah, we love shit. We love Star Wars. Yeah. Uh-huh. Dog, I'm ready to talk about these Obi-Wan episodes. We're going to talk a little bit about Top Chef. Uh, we're coming a day late, but not a dollar short because mm-hmm. we've got all that hot Jedi recapping to do. Greenwald, also, beautiful to see we, your face. We recorded this whole show in Manhattan Beach, so we didn't actually have to go on location. So we That's are right. not any dollar short. We are on budge. Uh, Andy, we also, programming note, We'll be broadcasting uh, on Monday evening, uh, despite the long weekend. We have a great interview with George Pelicanos, the um, famed crime writer, the uh, veteran TV hand at this point who worked on The Wire and on The Deuce and show ran We Own This City, which is you and between the two of us, I believe, pretty much our favorite show of the year. The finale for that show airs on Monday night, and we will be coming directly afterwards uh, with our interview with George and our discussion of the finale. Yeah. Should we should we just punt till then, or do you want to, Should we cover some of these new shows? Let's cover some new stuff. But man, just tell me how you're feeling. Oh, tell me how you're doing. I just had a couple. I just had a quick check in. I know it's been a minute. I know you're psyched. I figured that you were probably spending the week watching that Miyazaki film that you said you were going to watch. So I didn't want to interrupt you with any of these deets. But it's been a minute since we've had the semaphores going from Daddington Island. And I just had two quick things that I wanted to uh, just run by you, okay? And then we're going to, I promise, we're going to get into Obi-Wan. We watched both episodes. We are, we did our homework, okay? But first, because I think our, our listenership demands it, Chris, I just want to quiz you on like, what is your, okay, Chris, you know that like when people hire like marketing firms to do like to launch a campaign, they check in with the public. Like what's your awareness level, right? Oh, and yeah. I feel like the awareness Fo- level focus for like- groups, yeah. Yeah, but like the yeah. awareness for Top Gun Maverick, which I think we're going to go see together this weekend and maybe maybe share some junior mints or am I getting ahead of myself? That awareness is very high. But Chris, as a golfing man of the world, what was your awareness of the Disney Plus original film Chippendale Rescue Rangers? Just checking in. Is it so? My understanding of this is that mm-hmm. it is some kind of like postmodern collage uh-huh. of mm-hmm. of actual IP. But you tell me all about it. I've seen some ads up and down Sunset Boulevard. Yes, it's it's super weird. It's basically the Lonely Island guys and John Mulaney like secured the bag. Like, oh, is that why they've but, just been like Mulaney yes. is just like hosting inside the NBA and shit. Like, yeah. <laughs> That's because Ahmad Rashad got COVID. That's why Mulaney. Mulaney's just availed for that stuff now. No, yeah, they, every so often, I don't know whether they get the vapors or they just drink some of the spice that has crossed from the Dune universe into the Obi-Wan universe. That's called foreshadowing. But every so often, these large corporate gatekeepers just like get a little little dizzy with the vapors and they let people do stuff. And I don't know where it fits in the corporate mandate, but they basically let the Lonely Island guys and Mulaney take the, I guess, generationally beloved uh, Disney TV show, Rescue Rangers, and do this weird meta update 
where they are like retired, but then called back into action. But they live in a world where um, like Kiki Palmer also lives and humans live. And then also one of them has gotten CGI surgery to look more like contemporary cartoons, but the other one hasn't. And then there's also a claymation character and a Muppet. Are you with me on all this? Sure. Yeah. I, I just want to know what your awareness of it was because it's very funny. And it, but the, the, the type of dad on Daddington Island I am is I was like, children, I know you're constantly aware of new content on the plus and you're interested in this film. I have to say, I'm not always comfortable showing you something that within 30 seconds of a beginning, I have to pause and explain to you not only the history of 1990s cartoons, but also history of the 1990s. And then also what CGI animation used to look like a decade before they were born. And also who Seth Rogen is like, that seems to me like too high a barrier for entry. Was this the case for the Lego movie or they haven't seen the Lego movie, right? Oh, oh Chris, you, you, you beautiful angel. <laughs> they haven't seen the Lego movie. Do you know, that the pandemic years will, like, Pavlovian return to them, Proustian, will just be the Lego Movie 2 soundtrack, which is pretty much number one on all my Spotify lists. Okay. Like, that's, yes, they love the Lego movies, and they're really good, but it another, was... Another quick follow-up before you... Less before you so. Keep going. Yeah. Chip and Dale are chipmunks, yeah? Okay, you're great. You're in the pocket with me. Yeah, yeah. Do they talk like Alvin and the chipmunks? Do they go like, I still want a hula hoop? Like that shit? The best thing was your eyes on Zoom were <laughs> pleading for a quick cutoff on that. And you were denied. You were denied. I'm thrilled you brought it home. Uh, no, they talk like, and I know you're going to be surprised here. They talk like Andy Samberg and John Mulaney. Okay, that's disappointing. Oh, <laughs> okay. That's why you're out. That would be like Bernthal not doing the Baltimore accent. If you're going to go Chippendale, go full chipmunk. I think you're thinking Alvin, though. That is separate IP. They don't have the rights to that. Yeah, but isn't the, like, shouldn't there just be a universal fictional chipmunk human voice? Wow. First of all, hashtag not all chipmunks. I thought we were past this. There could be different chipmunkical representation on the screen. Look, we can pivot. I just wanted to say that despite all of the, like, footnoting, like, like me talking about and watching this movie with them was like like one of our friend Chuck Klosterman's books. Like there were so many footnotes and footnotes on footnotes, but then they loved it. So good job, Andy Samberg and John Mulaney. It's a very funny movie, but I think it would be funnier if you were over the age of 30, which I don't know if is always the goal, but I think it succeeded. Okay, second point. Speaking of Daddy Tonight. Okay. Yeah, Jesus this is the other Christ. thing I want to talk to you about. <laughs> Dude, I need your help with this one. Okay. Because I need, this is, I think this is relevant to today's podcast, not the Top Chef part, but because so much of, covering the IP is about like unpacking our own childhoods in a way, because that's, yeah, that's for those sure. are the trunks where today's entertainment is stored apparently. So I took them this weekend. There's a, you know, there, there are places like this all over this, this country of ours, but like there's a arcade uh, on the East side. That's also a bar that also now has a great taco spot in it. Tacos 1986 has moved into this place called button mash. I'll just name it. It's on sunset Boulevard and they have glad they opened eight, up again. They have, yeah, they were closed for a long time and they're back. Good for them. Great spot great space, but they have a lot of 80s arcade cabinets. And my children, who have been mostly like video game deprived, were really excited about this. And then, not unlike showing them Chippendale's Rescue Rangers, they were so excited and they had like a stool for my littler one to like climb up and see. And she's like, Dad, Dad, what do I do? And I was like, okay, real quick, real quick. You're a burger chef and you got to run across this lettuce until it falls on the hot dog, but you have five shakes of a pepper canister to shake on the hot dog if it gets close to you and just keep running over the tomato. Now get the bun. And she's like, I didn't understand any of that. What do I touch? And then it was game over. And I realized, my first thought was, oh my God, this poor generation of children, they don't have the muscle memory. Like we learned like Arkanoid, you just put the ball back and forth. Like we just learned certain like intuitive Atari 2600 era commands, right? And I was like, maybe that made us uh, adept or adept like mentally in a different right. way. Maybe that served us some degree. But then I would took my older daughter. She's like, oh, a skateboarding game. I like to skateboard in real life. So she's much cooler than me. And she was like, what do I do? I was like, move this trackball to the left where it says skate park training and go over here and then hop on this railing. And it said game over. And I was like, what, what? Maybe all of this sucked and Dude, always did. Don't you remember the the experience of putting like a dollar fifty yes. into Dragon's Lair, which was essentially like our life savings? Dude, and it being they still over have it. in like as soon as you were like, I can't believe I've made this investment. 
I really hope that I'm like up to the task of slaying this dragon. And then as you're like preparing yourself and getting yes. all like into the zone, like it just ends. Dude, they're all like that. All of them. I was playing Double Dragon. By the way, I was, they were like, what does this game do? I'm like, well, you walk around and you punch. They were like, no, thanks. <laughs> what about this game? You walk around and you shoot. No, thanks. How about this game? You walk around and you're a turtle and you eat pizza. And they were like, interested as they're punching? Yes, no, thanks. So I think they're better people than I am. But the main takeaway, Chris, was the pricing has not changed. When I looked, when I cleaned out my parents' old house and I found like my long box of comic books and I saw just how much, how many comic books I bought, I was a little mortified, but I felt a little bit better knowing that all those issues of West Coast Avengers cost like 75 cents, which is not nothing, but it's not a ton. Now they cost like $6. Arcade games always cost a quarter. It's the, it's that the Costco seems, hot dog, man. Inflation proof. But it seems crazy to me that we brought $5 to an arcade and got and squeezed maybe 97 seconds of entertainment out of it. Oh yeah, I mean it, it sucked, it, right? I, I I don't even have a I don't even have a note. It was just it was such a wild economic proposition. Was there anything from that era that in your mind you'd be like, I could still rock that? Like like I'm yeah, still good I, at that. I could I could stay on Pac Man for a minute. Yeah, Pac Man is okay because Pac Man is just I, a lot of like yeah gestural movements that are that still uh, make and sense. it wasn't Space Invaders, but it was like Defenders yeah, yeah. or something like that. Defender or Galaga? Galaga, I could fuck with. Yeah, especially the tabletop Galaga, the pizza parlors. Chris, I want to. I'm going to. First of all, I'll take you to Button Mash and we'll see. But I, I talked real greasy about Galaga. Shout out to the pizza place. Like I, <laughs> I was like, girls, watch Daddy go to outer space, and they were like, why does it say game over? <laughs> <laughs> um, it was terrible. Okay. We can move off let's, the island. Let's dig daddy to outer space again, right? Okay. Uh, Andy, we're here to talk about um, the first two episodes of Obi-Wan. We can, in general, discuss other things that came out of the Star Wars Celebration Days. Shout out to all the Ringerverse folks who went out to Anaheim and checked that out. Mal and Jomi and Steve and Charles. Uh, Mike I think Trout. Van went. I don't even know if Van went, but uh, he was not in the photos that I saw. It looked fun. They got to see the Andor trailer. They got to find out Jude Law is going to be in Space Goonies. And there was a Willow trailer, I think, adjacent to Lucasfilm. Mm-hmm. And then they dropped those first two Obi-Wans. And they put, I, I thought we were going to watch Obi-Wan on Friday morning. So the reason why this podcast is coming out on Friday is that I thought Obi-Wan's going to go up at midnight. I will be, you and I will both be in our sarcophaguses. <laughs> but we got up. We, mm-hmm. we, we did one last night, one this morning. And here we are. Two episodes of Obi-Wan Kenobi. I think that we were really anticipating this. And I have to admit, I think that I, I've I found my mojo. It came back. Okay. I'm not, I oh. refuse to be like, I refuse to be like frustrated by this. I think because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. deep down in the places I don't like to talk about in parties, I didn't really care about Boba Fett. You know what I mean? Like it was just wow. like, that was always a guy that I was like, I got just enough, you know? In the movies, I think, I think we've all learned that to be accurate. Yeah, and it's not to say that there aren't some redeeming parts of that show. I was just like, you know what? I think I got. I'm good. You know. And then with Obi Wan, I was just like, I kind of just give me as much as you want to give me. You know, like I, I, I'm not actually a big prequels person, as we know. You're not a big prequels person. We're OGs, but I was very excited for you and McGregor to come back. And the initial sort of pitch of this, it was being written by Hussein Amini, who wrote Drive. And I think it was sort of this idea that it was going to be a Jedi noir. It was kicked around. We were both very into that. It was delayed for a while, COVID, et cetera. It was supposed to come out on Wednesday. Now it's out on Friday. They put the two f- first two episodes up. And I just thought, not only was I certainly entertained enough, but I was fascinated by what different people think Star Wars needs <laughs> to do and <laughs> fucking Obi-Wan having to do all of it, brother. Yeah, I, I also want to shout out the creative team for, look, I obviously we, we do a podcast about our opinion, so there's an ego involved in this. But, you know, famously or infamously, our, our listener and now and now friend Damon Lindelof has said that we, we pissed him off so much with our coverage of The Leftovers Season 1 that the opening in the cave was directly made for us to antagonize us. So maybe this is sort of built into my what I'm about to say, which is I felt very seen by Lucasfilm. And I felt very warmly towards the show when I realized that Obi-Wan, like me, has nightmares about the Phantom Menace. That he wakes up at night thinking about aspects of Attack of the Clones. So and we're he, too he's in- sweating. Spoilers for any of the first two episodes, but let's just get going. I have like a notebook 
dump to do for you. So we could start with this previously on Obi-Wan Kenobi, a new show. Oh, I show. mean, no, but literally he wakes up with nightmares of it later. Yeah. Because first, okay, I just, Chris, let me take your temperature on exactly the beginning. How do you feel about new series beginning with a recap? I think we should do it all the time now. <laughs> and not For only that, culture. I don't think that we should be uh, beholden to actually yes. covering anything that was in the show. I think you could just be like Agreed. previously on Under the Banner of Heaven and it's just fucking Top Gun. <laughs> it's just it's just Maverick and Goose over the Indian Ocean. I think I think that the and it's like you guys don't Hulu understand Rings the connection. Would, Wait, it'll hit. It, improve yeah. yeah i mean the previously on i was like i was like recap okay and then the recap were the fucking prequels <laughs> just like the three movies and you know i also think that we said this last week i think it's i do think it's worth repeating that it's not just what individual creators or creative people think star wars is it's that the audience is constantly shifting and that this show is i believe in many ways the first like reclamation of the legacy of the prequels, that those are now some people who are now old enough to be Disney Plus consumers and subscribers, that is their Star Wars. And so it's back in the fold. It's you know not like people were actively uh, retconning it out of existence, but like that's that's the backbone. This is the sequel to that. Yeah. Yeah, and that's Great. that's an interesting proposition for two people who are not maybe like the biggest prequel guys. In fact, not maybe. I would say I was relieved to get previously on Obi-Wan because I was like, God damn it, I am not rewatching those movies. <laughs> you know, like, I'm just not going to do it. So I, there are a couple of things in this, these two episodes. And I, I, I can see just in, in my internal tomato meter, uh, I would say the reviews for this show have been uh, mixed, right? Uh -huh. Like some of the trades, especially in Deadline and a couple of other places are like a misfire. I think that there is a little bit more affection on it from the more fan-friendly kind of wing of uh, pop culture criticism. But there's a few things in these two episodes that I think almost are... Here's the thing. I like watching these shows with my imagination turned on, and the things that are in it that are not necessarily the point are the things that I have the most joy from. Okay. And you and I have often spoken about how, like, oh, I wish there was just a Star Wars show set on a bar or a Star Wars show set in a police department or a Star Wars show yeah. that was uniquely underworld and not maybe a little bit more a little more am uh, morally ambiguous than uh, Boba Fett wound up being or whatever, even though Boba Fett also wound up being Mandalorian in 2.5. So I have to really like say that the first person that I thought of when we found out that 10 years after the events of, of, of the last prequel, what's the, what, that one called? Uh, Sith, Revenge of the Sith. Revenge of the Sith. 10 years after that, we find Obi-Wan mm -hmm. and he is just cutting sashimi grade Mm -hmm. sand tuna belly he is he is the master sushi chef he's basically working in the tatooine pike's place market yeah well he's the sushi chef at the albertsons you know what i mean <laughs> like he's not at like a three-star michelin temple of gastronomy with like no. a you know like with with the with a perfect wooden bar he's 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 cutting fish to order you know, it's a little bit Sinclair Lewis vibes in there. I don't know about the cleanliness in the desert. Do you get the impression that when he was sort of sneaking those cuts out, that that was like part of his payment? Or was he actually, was that internal shrinkage for the, uh, the, the, the sort of food production line there? Is that like taking a, a couple of drumsticks home from the Tyson plant? Well, that's what I didn't understand. Like, I, I, I couldn't tell. Was he stealing the, the, the Toro of the... Of the sandfish? Well, I also like, didn't know if that was uh, human food because he quickly mm. takes it to his anteater horse and is yeah. like, here you go, my, my beautiful beast. <laughs> you know? And I'm just like, are, are, you just, are you just drowning in great food that you can afford to be feeding your, your horse this delicious cut? And the animal, it's like, there's no, there's no wasabi, you know, there's no <laughs> anointing of any kind of soy product. Um, well... Okay, it's also possible that after all he's seen and all the places he's traveled, and by the way, if you're keeping score at home, yes, I am just half in this conversation and half wondering if I just mixed up Upton Sinclair and Sinclair Lewis. <laughs> it's okay. Which, which I feel like is where a lot of our audience is as well, and I'd like to apologize to the other English majors out there. Um, I think that out of respect to just, you know, maybe he has a little, little Jedi belly and like he needs a different kind of, different kind of oh, uh, diet. Oh, he's been spoiled. Yeah. Well, because then he gets home 
and he cooks up a little a little space dinty more. You know what I mean? He stirs it up. I love it. And frankly, he has a lovely uh, bachelor existence. You know, he's got kind of big, big divorce dad energy. Like he's got a little indoor outdoor living. He's got his dinner for one, and he has an open door policy with his neighbor, the Jawa. And look, I respect man, that. Look at fucking Redfin right now in Los Angeles. The, 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 <laughs> I know. That casita is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. I know. It's like a dream big by staring out into the wasteland of a desert planet. <laughs> um, we could just keep going through these episodes kind of beat by beat. I noted that the uh, Grand Inquisitor scene at the saloon with yeah. the Safty brother was essentially like a beat for beat homage to Inglorious Bastards first scene. Did you mm-hmm. did you notice that that speech is basically the Christoph Waltz speech? I think Rupert Friend realized it and <laughs> and, 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 and and made a you know sashimi grade sandfish meal out of it. Yeah, which I respect I'm surprised you didn't ask for a giant glass of, of of fresh dairy farm milk. My feeling about the three Inquisitors who who were played by Moses Ingram, Rupert Friend, and Sung Kang, I kind of got the vibe, and I respect this also that they were cast separately and kept apart from each other during the decision-making process. And then just like action. Deb Chow was just like, go. And because they are very much in three different shows and I am sympathetic to all three of the shows. But this is around the point in the story when I believe, because we both started watching at the same time, where we both just started interpolating this with We Own the City yeah. and imagining them as the the members of the uh, Jedi Trace Task Force. Yes. I mean, I think... You're going to have to, you're really going to have to understand that the impact of We Own This City on us is that I'm going to be asking a lot more whether or not Wayne Jenkins could be fitting into the shows that we're watching, whether it's conversations with friends, whether it's this, whether it's hacks. I just want to know if there's a part of John Bernthal's performance as Wayne Jenkins. Yes, not Wayne Jenkins as a a currently incarcerated public servant, but like you definitely like. Like, Like, when they were going through and they had Uncle Owen out there in the courtyard and like, you know, Riva is just disrespecting the Geneva Conventions. <laughs> I was like, what we really need here is somebody to come in and be like, excuse me, sir, are you hiding some little Jedis? <laughs> now you can make this easier. I can go to the Grand Inquisitor. I can get a warrant. Shit. We're going to find that Force-sensitive work. You're going to go to jail for a long fucking time. Show us the lightsaber, dum-dum. Or like when they find the when they find the Safety brother and they're like, oh, third sis, we're eating tonight. We're eating tonight, third sis. And a motherfucking brick. It's great stuff. It's a great uh, vibe. I, I um, <laughs> keep going down your list. I because I was going down my mental list, and it was just more references to the HBO series we own the city, and I, we got to stay focused. Okay, so here's the thing: we're on Tatooine. Joel Edgerton's got his wig on. He's like, "Stay the fuck away from my family." Right. Ewan McGregor's trying to do some helicopter dad stuff and just be like, I'm going to drop in on weekends. He's just going to know me as Uncle... Uncle Ben. Uncle, Uncle Ben out here in the in the sand. And I'm like, this is dope. This is so cool. Like, there's, I love... Like, I know that it's not dissimilar from what we've seen on Mando, what we've seen on Boba. And, <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I was really into it. And then um, I'm going to call uh-huh. it the, the Grogu problem comes up. Here we go. Because they bring fucking Leia back, which was the wild card that they had in their back pocket. They had done a couple yep. of trailers for the show. I don't know that uh, this was the closely guarded secret. This is to Obi-Wan. Leia is to Obi-Wan as Grogu was to the Mandalorian. This idea of bringing up a unbearably cute innocent that needs to be protected. Now, funnily enough, we had heard or it had been reported that the original version of Obi-Wan Kenobi had been sort of re, redone. You know, those original scripts fell too close to the Mandalorian plotline. And so they were like, hey, we, we don't want to do because another Because he was protecting yes. little Luke in the original version right. of this TV series. I, I do wonder what the brainstorming process was for this because it was like, we can't have him... We can't have him doing little Luke because, you know, that is, we are doing a show where this happens. So let's just like, let's just get our, the sort of frontal lobes humming here. And like, what could Mm -hmm. we come up with? What's a completely different look for this show? What's a completely different set of stakes? Hmm. What if it was Leia? (laughs) Dude, child protection plots are to Lucasfilm what crack cocaine is to Dave Chappelle's character, Tyrone Biggums. Like they just cannot say no. They cannot say no. There was no version of this where they were like, 
What if we went outside the box and it wasn't Tatooine and protecting one of the Skywalker children? No, no, no. This show is, has to stay in the box. It's a very, very small box. And look, this is this is kind of a problem, right? Okay, I mean, yeah. three, through two episodes, it's kind of a problem. And I'm, look, I'm, ha- I'm having fun. I'm having fun. I'm going to keep having fun. But there is something that I just feel like needs to be said here, which is, look, the caveat is everybody has their own Star Wars and now we're seeing it play out. What mm-hmm. matters to them? We are old heads. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows what our Star Wars was and what it meant to us and why we liked it. And I think it just bears repeating. For people of our generation, the great promise of more Star Wars stories after the original trilogy in our childhood was could be boiled down to really one thing. Man, it would be cool to see Jedi's kick ass because mm-hmm. they're space knights with laser swords. Let's fucking go. So that's the energy that we brought into the movie theaters on my birthday in 1999 to see. And it turns out the Jedi were tax collectors. Sure. And it was who sometimes fought robots. And that was real boring and a bummer. And for the rest of that trilogy, Obi-Wan just kind of like took care of a kid and told him to hurry up. Or he went to like diners and talked to CGI Muppets. Like that was what he did. So the energy, like this is Charlie Brown with the football stuff. But when they were going to make a show and Ewan McGregor is coming back, I'm like, yeah, they're going to make a Jedi noir. And the thing we're going to see, the one thing I thought we were going to see, and still could, four episodes to go, would be a Jedi kicking ass with his (laughs) laser sword. And thus far, we've had crazy divorced uncle Jedi. Yeah. We've had a space commuter traveling Ryanair. Oh, no offense t- to your gonna, last name. We are going to get to the, the delayed transport flights. <laughs> and we have once again, wet blanket child protector Jedi. And I just can't believe we have all had all these years to run back the same things. Yeah. He's got a, he's got a laser sword, guys. Come on. Well, okay. So here's the argument against that is that this is a dude who's maybe been letting letting his skills go to go to waste for a while, right? Like he's essentially been uh, working that tuna collar for a while, and that does not require a, a laser sword. It's just like a really sharp, <laughs> yeah, a really really sharp blade. Yeah, right. I, I think you have to have him. Well, okay, this is the question. Do you have to have him go on a hero's journey where he is full of doubt and then finally, because of a child, he recognizes the need for his powers to um, reemerge? Or can you just have either A, Obi-Wan getting sand kicked in his face for six episodes? No. Or already Neo in the Matrix Obi-Wan, yeah. like moving no. through Dayu and just I, fucking mind tricking everybody. I, no, I mean, I want to be clear about this, that like the story beats of this series have been considered, they've been debated, and they are uh, they are very, very strong, defensible choices. Even leading up to the moment when he does choose to use his power, you know, to rescue the falling Leia, like that tracks. This is a, it's not just a reasonable story arc for a character to come back down off the shelf and rejoin the world. Like it tracks. It's logical. Yeah. I'm not arguing that. They made good choices. I don't think they made surprising choices, but that's a whole separate conversation. I think for me, and this is the Soto Voce thing, but we said it a couple of weeks ago, what if Obi-Wan kind of sucks? As a character? As a character. As right. a character. Not as Alec Guinness, as the old samurai who's there to be mystical and teach some stuff and then leave, but as now defined by the Ewan McGregor character. And this is the weird thing about it. You and I love Ewan McGregor. He's one of the most like energetic, charismatic stars of our era, uh, who also, by the way, looks maybe 32. And so the, he looks amazing. He looks Which, like- It's all the, the more insulting that they're just like, watch this old piece of shit shuffle across a rooftop. <laughs> they talk about him the way people talked about Andy Griffith and Matlock, okay? This dude looks like a golden god. He looks amazing. He's so handsome and burnished in the sun. His hair, he keeps flipping his hair. Somebody on our like, Facebook you page like, yeah. pointed this out. And as, as, a, as a father of daughters, I think you might be able to explain this. But yeah. when you have kids and stuff, yeah. do you have to pretend that they're faster than you? Like, oh, I can't catch up. You're so fast. Because that's essentially what he's doing in that rooftop chase in the second, second episode. 
Well, it's a rich question. Do you have to do that? <laughs> like, what kind of children are we looking to create here? I mean, here? if you're being, uh, like, chased by a sister, right? You, you're going to want to, like, be like, hey, we got to move along here. You know, like, you can't pretend I, like you're uh, Jackie Joyner Kersey right now. I will say that I, I think of myself as a, as a as generous parental figure who lets the children find their own way towards things. But then, callback, they also have an air hockey table at Button Mash. And I... Did you I, dominate them? Have you seen the videos <laughs> of you, like Joel and B like them joining the pickup games? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you teach them the agony of defeat? I, how loud is too loud to shout daddy's home? <laughs> Just wondering. Like, is it is it weird? If Were you, you talking about button mesh or your house? Well, I meant every time the distinctive sound of the puck entering my children's goal. Okay. Um... Yeah, so he so he looks amazing, but I'm just saying, as defined by the Ewan McGregor era of this character, he's kind of a noble wet blanket, and he still is, and that's that's kind of a bummer to me at the heart of the show. But they're putting him. I think the thing, the better thing to talk about is every one of these shows as an opportunity to do all of the connective tissue work that George Lucas never had to do, mm-hmm. and we've talked about this, you know, at length, especially with the Mandalorian, which just like oh, so there's travel and you have to get tickets and you go on spaceships and also sometimes there's internet but sometimes there's not but everyone has an apple watch now like you know what i mean like so it's constantly changing and this was interesting to see because this is an era uh this is before the mandalorian right this is this is post prequel pre four five and six yeah i was wondering if we had a i suppose slightly controversial uh conversation about better call saul a couple of days ago i don't know what you're talking about does the Breaking Bad, that is the original trilogy of episode four, five, and six, but specifically episode four of Star Wars, inform at all what you think is going to happen in Obi-Wan? Only in so much as... So here's the thing. They've already burned through half the cast <laughs> that I thought was going to be on this show. Rupert Friend, R.I.P. Uh, Flea, didn't know he was on the show, but... Uh, definitely doesn't seem like he survived the spiraling lightsaber to the face. I think Kumail is he's one still done. In play. Okay, he's still in play, but Safty is out. Safty's off the board. So this is like they are really moving through characters quite quickly, or maybe that's just the structure of the show that like this is going to sort of be like mildly famous person comes and greets uh, Obi Wan and puts him puts him in a different direction points him in a different direction. But like, I kind of wouldn't be surprised if by episode three and four, we have like a pretty different show than we have now. I don't even know that Leia is going to be in play this entire time. I, I mean, I, I, I hope not. I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's a polite way to say this. Like the Leia stuff, I think... It D- didn't work for you. Yeah, it didn't it, work for it, me. It's, it's not great. And I, I, I think it's tough to imagine a world where someone... Like, I, I think you have to have such, such deep fondness for the concept of the character to be watching this and being like, yes, this is the missing chapter of Carrie Fisher's story that I, that I needed. And even within the show, you know, the care, the, the kid is, is aware. She's like, I, why am I, why am I involved in this? This is about you basically. Right. 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 Um, so it seems it just, it, it, it's a creative, it's, it's typical of, I think this, this era of like late stage IP expansion where it's like, these are creative problem solves to get a character that was locked on a desert planet watching Luke for essentially decades off of the planet and back into the fray briefly and then to put him back where he started, right? Like right. we have to get him back to that place. So there's because, a lot of problem solves here. The by reason I asked people, you, yeah. But, the reason I asked about the Breaking Bad thing is because the Obi-Wan we meet in episode four mm-hmm. is still keeping his distance. Now he may be somewhat watching over Luke in, in his own way. But that guy is like, nobody's heard from him in a long time. He's just mm-hmm. a crazy old man living in the desert. So it's not like he comes back out of whatever happens in this series with a much more hands-on parenting technique. You know, like he's still, he's still going to be a wandering hermit. So it is kind of fascinating to consider that in relation to what's going to happen on Obi-Wan Kenobi. I think, and I don't want to get too far outside the pocket here because I'm curious what will happen next. I think that he had such a disappointing um, air travel experience. Okay, we got to do this that, now. That he just decided to stay home. Because that's happened to me after some pretty gnarly flights. Yeah. Where I was so, like, it's just not worth it. 
he Obi-Wan shows up at Dayu uh, and it's just chaos at the airport. There's just canceled flights everywhere. Yeah, and no Wi-Fi, by the Do way. Do you think that he is... Um, what what happens in this episode if he has complimentary Admiral's Club, you know, entrance privileges? Like, if he can just go and he can just mm-hmm. get a hot towel, maybe get, like, you know, a chicken thigh and some potato salad and just kind of regroup. Also, spice nuts mean something different on this planet than I think than it does <laughs> at LAX. Um, and And more to the point is what... What medallion level on Delta do you think Obi-Wan is? Isn't that what Kumail shows him at the end when he's like, you're not alone, Obi-Wan? Then he shows him his silver medallion. <laughs> like, you got you got 5,000 MQMs for coming to this backwater. That's right. I, I, think, I think that's definitely a part of it. I mean, I like, the things I like about the show genuinely are the indignities of his non-Jedi yes, life. Yes, I do too. Because the, the version, the first time we met this version of Obi-Wan, the young version, uh, you know, everything is shiny. And that was one of the things that was so strange about Phantom Menace that I do think had some intentionality behind it, which was that it was a different era of, of the universe, of the galaxy far, far away and of the, you know, of the, the, the Republic. And everything was beautiful and shiny and clean and they were just prancing around from ship to ship and everything was fine. And now he's got to fly coach like the rest of us, like, like, like a schnook. Shout out Ray Liotta, RAP, you know? I like that. I like that aspect of the show. And I kind of wish there was room for a little, I mean, this is so typical. I feel like a cliche saying this, but I do wish there had been some room for a little bit more of the, like the TikTok of like, we used to have a Republic in this country. Oh yeah. We, and we now, used to make things and die. Yeah. And now we don't, which, you know, I don't, I don't know why I'm fixated on the idea of losing a democracy when you're not paying attention, but you know, it feels like it would really connect at this, at this particular moment. Well, I mean, we get a, a hint of that with the Jimmy Smith's uh, appearance, I guess, you know, although I, do, I, I was more confused. Is Alderaan like adjacent to Tatooine? I guess it is, right? Well, they've got go fast ships. It's like the Miami Vice film. Sure, they can you get can, where they you need can go to, to hyperspace. I don't know what's the airline miles in hyperspace. Is that double or is um, it half? Um, Bail Organa flies private. <laughs> I don't think that's even a question. One thing that I've never understood. He flies fire. He lands in Van Nuys too. You know, I didn't understand this with Natalie Portman in the prequels either. But she's a princess, and yeah. her dad's a senator. Like. I know that we revere political uh, uh, dynasties in this country too, but I don't get, I've never understood that. Maybe it's like a House of Lords thing. Like he's like in the the sort of more royal seats of parliament. But if she's a princess, what is he? Uh, That's a great question, man. I I don't know. I mean, (laughs) I just, I'm just very, I've always been flummoxed by this. Well, he, but does it, maybe, maybe he emerges out of this because it's, she's a, is she princess in this show? Did they refer to her as princess? Yeah, yeah they, they do. Yeah, they keep calling her princess. Yeah, they do. What's up with that? And why is the Red Hot Chili Peppers after her? And, I mean... And where's Frashante? Well, I think this is during another period where he's left the band. Okay. <laughs> this is like when Flea plays with Tom York for a couple of years, you know, just like waiting, <laughs> waiting for it to get going. Do you want again. me to go through a couple more notes that I had yes, on these episodes? Okay, so, I mean, I enjoyed the Kumail as Jedi Miss Cleo. Uh, that was fun. I yeah, it was fun. really, really enjoyed a Chris Ryan film, Star Wars Meth Lab. <laughs> that was a meth lab, right? Yeah, we had sushi bars and meth labs in the Star Wars universe, which I, I feel like there are listeners at Lucasfilm being like, we literally gave you what you want to um, us. I really enjoyed Reva being like, when she makes the sort of... Uh, APB, she's like, get me all the low lives and bounty hunters. And I'm just like, is there low life Twitter? And can I get on it? Oh my God. Oh yeah. There is low life Twitter. <laughs> there a hundred percent is. She uh, slid into the DMS of every, every dirtbag. Yeah. And, uh, after that, it's, I just basically said like with the sort of climactic chase scene, I was like, you know, the, the, the Michael Corleone Godfather three meme of every time Every time mm-hmm. I'm out, they pull me back in. That's me with parkour scenes. Like, oh yeah. Every time I think I'm done, yeah. Somebody no. runs up the side of a wall and flips onto an air duct. Do you want to make me fall in love with the character? Then have the character slowly walk up to the ledge of something and swan dive off of it. Yeah, I respect that. I do. I love that. It looked great. Deb Chow, shout out to Deb Chow. Great direction. I genuinely mean this. The Star Wars shows look good. And I feel like their corporate pals at Marvel need to 
take a peek at what they're doing over there because yeah. there's there's something happening here that it's bizarre to me that it's happening because it shouldn't be that I I don't know what processes have to be streamlined or uh, methods have to be adjusted or what machinery needs to be airlifted to Atlanta. But the disparity in just visual consistency and quality at this exact moment between these two massive universes is really, really startling. I mean, I certainly felt that way with the Andor trailer, which we can talk about before we get to Top Chef. My my only last note was the interesting gambit that they are making with the, the Riva character, which is to make her, frankly unhinged you know like just definitely like mm-hmm. chopping up people's hands it's also very funny because like i know these shows have to be everything to everyone so like they kind of want to be like this person is uh beyond the pale and chops off a woman's hand but we're just going to cut away from that and that woman is just going to vanish from the scene as soon as that happens oh, so that you're well, not forced I... to confront like she'd be rolling around on the ground being like my hand and like no 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 the lightsaber cauterizes well it cuts you oh, know that's what I mean? right right so she's fine She's fine. This this is the same. I mean, Moon Knight introduces Ethan Hawke where he's just like, hello, grandmother, die in my arms. And right. then, then it's back to Oscar Isaac being like, oh, I'm mighty. I've crashed me van. Like, they're trying to have it both ways. It's cute. Um, but the Reva character is interesting because in for the brief moments before he gets uh, impaled, the Grand Inquisitor is very disrespectful to her. Yes. And alludes to, as she alludes to herself, a greater kind of obsession with Obi-Wan that goes beyond the uh, the job requirements. And that's got to do a lot of work dramatically because I think that we are going to be eventually like told, well, this is Reva's story, much like I think that yeah, we well, got some Mandalorian subplots where it's like, hey, for every, you know, jackass bounty hunter, they have like a sob story to start with, you know? Well, yeah. I mean, I also feel like she's going to be revealed as one of the Jedi kids I mean, that, that, that was at the Academy, right? Like that, isn't oh, that... Oh, damn. I didn't even think about that. Isn't that why I, we started there and she got taken down? I thought that was just and, supposed to be execute order 66. Like this is this is where it was. So you think that she gets, feels like she's abandoned by Ben, by, by Obi-Wan? Or by the Jedi, yeah. I feel like if she was lifted up as a kid who had the gift... Who had the midichlorians? Are we still talking about those? Damn, dude, you just um, have like that feel, man. Like it's like you can just you got the particles in between your your fingertips. I am to this show the way third sis is to Kumail's brain. You don't need to talk, baby. I got it. I got it. Oh, um, third sis. She's also basically got the job of being terrifying until Darth shows up, right? I wanted to know. I mean, I mean, he does in that last shot of the episode. Is it just me or did, wasn't like when Vader reveals who he is to Luke at the end of Empire, right? Yes. That was not a closely guarded secret? Well, amongst who? That's but the question I have. And we got low-life Twitter. There's no chatter on there. There's no like, yo, I heard this Darth guy is actually Anakin. Or was but that just known? Does, does anyone know who Anakin Skywalker is? Are Jedi famous? How many people are in the universe? How who how do they talk about people? Are there magazines? Like that that's the stuff that was blessedly missing from the movies. So I don't know. Like I, I think it's a really good question to ask, but I don't have any sense of what it would matter. Right? But to, if people are like, oh shit, that because guy's Anakin Skywalker. Tells... Quick follow-up. Who's Anakin Skywalker? Right. But when she says that to Kenobi, he's like, Damn, like I didn't know that. He th- but, he thought that Anakin was dead, obviously. Yes, but he must have he, heard of Vader. That's my next question. So I don't I don't I don't know. Like, is the sushi shop like a Foxconn situation where like they don't get outside news? Right. You know what I mean? This or is why like they say democracy guarded. dies in darkness. You gotta keep the free press pumping. You gotta let that, people know. And that is why Jeff Bezos is using all his money to go to space to make sure. <laughs> All the sushi cutters out there at the far ends of the galaxy know what's up. That's the best use of his money. He's just thinking past where we are. This is where you and I come in and we start space axios, where we're just like, you guys just need bullet points. The four things you need to know. (laughs) Darth Vader is Anakin Skywalker. Follow up. Anakin Skywalker was a whiny kid who did racing on a desert planet. (laughs) And then got cut to pieces by the And it's like, there's more. He survived the lava. Yeah. And a, a loving father. You know, the kids are being raised with that. Okay. Um, Before Top Chef, I, I, do you want to do it? 
Okay. Yeah, it's it's important to say this because as like proof of life, proof of life, shout out to the Russell Crowe, Meg Ryan film. Proof of life isn't just holding up a newspaper, which Obi-Wan clearly is unable to do <laughs> in a hostage video. Proof of life is just reminding everyone that my heart still beats, okay? And Andor looks awesome. Yeah, this is why we keep coming back. Andor looks so, so good. Now, were we predisposed to like it because of the big homie Tony Gilroy manning the wheel? Yeah, yes. Uh, Also, Diego Luna. I mean, that's awesome. Great. Also, this is the rise of a guerrilla faction of rebels who are going up against the Empire. Yeah. But, But beyond that, they took the time, and I don't know if this translates to series, but they took the time in crafting this trailer to consider the aesthetics of it as a whole. In this short trailer, there's a sense of an entire world that does not demand prior knowledge or deep dives into the prequels, nary a Skywalker in sight. But there's a world and a place with some human blood thrumming through it, you know? Yes. It it looks pretty and it looks interesting and it looks fun. And I was so relieved when we got this. Like, I really hope it, I mean, for many reasons, I really hope it's good. But maybe the biggest one is to go back to what you said, which is like, this is how they get us. Oh, every time. Every time. And it's, I, I would say that there are, there's like a part of me that watching Obi-Wan, I'm just like, I really hope that Cassian Andor is not redeemed by his protection of a child throughout this season. But other than that, I have no notes. I'm just like, show me refugee, like on the run, baby spy, Cassian Andor putting together the dirty dozen to pull some mission and, and how he get, and what's the dark side of the rebellion. And the cast looks incredible. Skarsgård looks incredible. I'm so fired up for this show. It just looks like I'm so happy to get the fuck off of Tatooine. I'm so yes. thrilled to see like trees and cloud cover. So sign me up, put my name on the dotted line, like do it. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. One thing you don't have to worry about cleaning up this spring season, your wireless bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. It's easy. And right now they have unlimited talk, text, and data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month for first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. Do you want to do some Top Chef? Yeah, let's get into Top Chef since we have the luxury of a Friday show. Also, this was an awesome episode of Top Chef. This was probably my favorite episode of the season. I think they got the right four chefs going. This is obviously spoilers for Top Chef, so so feel free to go back to the beginning of the episode and listen to the first 12 minutes of Andy talking about Chip and Dale again because that was the mm-hmm. highlight of it. Um, we go to Tucson. I did not know Tucson was an UNESCO uh, okay. food site. Did you? Here's a small note. I actually, I really want to go to Tucson prior to this. I've heard great things about food, culture, beautiful spot. This episode, even once it got going, was a really important reminder that Top Chef has not really messed with the Southwest. And I think that's phenomenal. It's a great place for the show to go and be. But unintentionally, one of the funniest moments in the history, 19 seasons now or whatever, of this program, where at the end of last week, when they were like, congratulations, you've run the gauntlet of Houston a great food city that we spent little to, little, to, little to no time in. We're going to one of only two places in America that is a UNESCO food heritage site. And they're all like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you see their, their minds are going. They're like, it's got to be New Orleans. Like, this is going to be right. you know, rich. And they're like, get ready. Pack your bags. You've earned the right to go to Tucson. And no disrespect to Tucson, which acquits itself beautifully, but it is the reality TV equivalent of when Wayne and Garth go to Delaware in the Wayne's World movie. Another translation of that statement would have been if Padma was like, congratulations, you've won a trip to the only place more permissive than Texas when it comes to COVID regulations. Oh my, oh my 
God. I have like, to that say was... though, man, we get to this episode and all of a sudden the magic is back. It's like the the Top yeah. Chef version of Andor where I'm like, this is what this is supposed to be. The colors of the place are supposed to totally. pop in the, in the scenery of the show and they should inform the food. And I felt like even the two challenges that they did, the quick fire and the elimination, the first one being with this carne seca, this dried like jerky style Mexican meat preparation. And then the final elimination challenge that utilized chiltepine peppers and cactus. I was like, what, where the fuck was this in Houston? You know what I mean? It was the spirit. And I think also, obviously you've got four excellent chefs. You get those moments in top chef when those four chefs, when, or however many final chefs you've got, are now cooking at such a high level that the judgment is about the most minor blemishes mm-hmm. rather than you fucked up some massive part of this dish or you didn't get something on the plate or this this catastrophe happened. Personally, that's my preferred version. I also think it's a more it's a it's a greater challenge for the judges to articulate what's happening with the food when they have to find those things that are just minorly wrong with a great yes. dish rather than be like, well, I didn't get my sauce. Or I didn't get my pickle, or I didn't get this. You know, like that to me is like always a little bit underwhelming when those kinds of things happen. I think that happened with Dawn last season a couple of yep. times with her timing. But this is just awesome. I thought like it was also really cool. I felt like they focused a little bit more on the different chefs' unique perspectives on what they were cooking. And I don't know and if how you they pick, go about it. I, agree. I, you know, I thought it was almost interesting to consider what they did on those two weeks in between Texas and, and Arizona, Buddha obviously went and, or as his wife calls him, Buddha obviously went and got like in his bag and is, I think really plotting out like a, I'm going to have some tricks that I pull out at each mm-hmm. stage of this competition. But at the same time, like Sarah is like cooking from her Michigan background of like, I forage, I, we broke down a deer. I work with mushrooms. Like there's a certain flavor to my stuff. There's a certain flavor to Evelyn's stuff who was obviously, you know, was cooking out of her mind in that final elimination. And Damar was not that far off. Damar spent the two weeks Googling how to clean a cactus, apparently, which did, <laughs> Watching which YouTube. did, come, in, which did come in handy. And if my golf yeah. swing is anything to go by, you can't just learn things on YouTube, man. They, they, I learned the truth about COVID on YouTube. I think, I think it's good for a couple things. Um, I think that these, this is the thing with Top Chef, and I hope it's baked into, no pun intended, into our gentle criticism of every season when it gets started. Like, they often, no, they generally end up in the right place, you know? And I think these four chefs, Nick last week as well, I love Nick, these were the right people. They're deserving to be there. Their points of view, their relationship, their camaraderie, their passions are so well reflected once you finally get down to it. And that's, you know, that's a compliment, not just to the chefs involved, but also to the producers who really do consistently find people who can not only deliver on a very high level, but also bring the humanity that we need. Because I think you're right. Once they get to Tucson, everyone is on the same page in such a glorious degree. It doesn't mean they're cooking the same food, far from it, but everyone is sharing the same vibe of warmth and cultural appreciation and mutual respect. They honored the ingredients. They learned at the farm. They liked hanging out with Maria and they delivered. Right. And then it became a game of inches, which is, I think, what you want it to be at this stage. I have to ask you, though, Mm -hmm. I don't know if this has been your experience and I don't know if it's specific to my experience as having watched all 19 seasons or whatever. But I don't remember this happening previously, which is every week, maybe for the whole season, but I'm definitely going to say for the last seven or eight weeks. It has been unquestionably clear who is going home early in the episode, if not before the episode started. The last three weeks, I've made a point of saying this to is, myself. Here are my picks. Nick is probably not going to make it this week. Um, not because of any disrespect to Nick, but because of what had happened the previous week with the family cooking challenge uh, in Galveston and also the caliber of where everyone else is in the game. And after last week, you could tell that DeMar was starting to drag a little bit. Again, he delivered in so many ways and it was a beautiful send-off. But I think even he was like, I've hit my wall at this moment for where I am. And I yeah. can feel it. I, I It hasn't lessened my enjoyment of the episode, but I can't remember a previous season where it's been so clear so early, week to week, what was going to happen. So I think that it depends on the characters at play. For instance, it is now pretty much a weekly occurrence that Sarah downplays her cook, like her cook, her ability, her plan, her like whatever. She goes into something and she's just like, 
you know, the ice cream machine exploded. I don't really, I've never done this before, blah, blah, blah. And I think that like, that's a little bit of a misdirection where I've always kind of been like a Sarah going home, like because of her level of confidence or at least the way she talks about herself in those Mm one-on-ones. I felt like DeMartis didn't seem like he came into the kitchen with like a ton of confidence today, like, or today, like on that, on that semifinal cook where it just seemed like as soon as those beans went wrong, it was playing catch up and it was like, how can I try to, you know, basically patch together a meal that's a pretty big deviation from what I really wanted to be serving. And in the meantime, the people around him seemed to be like flying. So yeah, I I guess you're right. I mean, I think that there are some times where I, 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 you know, there are major errors, whether it's a timing thing or what, or a plating thing or a cooking through thing. Like Ashley, for instance, when they did that thing with her cooking the squid and she was just like, I made sure to pull that squid off early. And I was like, Oh shit. You know? Yeah. And they, they kind of made it sound like she was like, I remember I'm not supposed to overcook squid, but it seemed like that was bad. But they, you know, they also had in the previous week, they had Sarah being like, I plated this upside down and you know, like seemed to be like almost giving them more or less unadorned fish. So it's really tough, man. But it, do you feel like that's the same as with do you, do you feel like it's the same sort of broadcasting with the winners? Like, did you know Evelyn was going to win the elimination challenge oh. when they were cooking? No, not at all. Because I thought it, it was, fact, I thought Buddha was going to win. I think that it became clear once we got to judges' table that Evelyn was going to win because of the consistency. She was the only one who produced two dishes that they had very little to complain about. You know, I, I think that that both Sarah and Buddha crushed the first course, and they probably. Overall, the judges preferred those dishes to Evelyn's first course, which they also loved. But her dessert yeah. lifted the two collectively over the finish line. Um, it's an interesting place for the finale. I mean, I'm you can tell everyone, by the way, we're talking about it. Like, I'm very, very in to where the show is at the right time. Yeah. I think it's peaking at the right time. It's a, I, I'm trying to remember a final three as distinct as this not just in their cooking styles, but in where they are in their own heads and in the competition. Because what we have heading into this finale is Evelyn, who is bringing what she's brought from the beginning, which is an incredible depth of soul, for lack of a better word, in her cooking and flavor and understanding of ingredients and just vibing culturally with what's being put in front of her. And I'm not saying that because her grandmother taught her to cook Nepalis. I'm saying that each of these challenges, not just in terms of the ethnic ingredients, but in terms of the sentimental story that they build around the narrative, she's been able to lock into that time and time again. Buddha is back to being what he was at the beginning, which is a technical MacGyver level genius. But as we saw with this dessert, sometimes the innovation is outflanking the story. And then in Sarah, we have someone who it is all clicking for at the right time and is playing four-dimensional chess. At the yeah. Moment. Like when she's cooking on a level that we really only see from winners where she's like, I guess mushrooms and mulberries because I, I broke a deer down with my fiance and I don't know, it might just be slop in a bowl. And they're like, this is the greatest thing we've eaten in weeks. It's a little it's bit... A little bit like Colorado when it comes to recent seasons. I think that there there is there are shades of Joe, Carrie, and Adrian there. But I guess Joe hmm. Joe S was was in the final three, right? Carrie went out. No, Joe with Joe Flam, the one that he won. Joe yeah. S was mustache Joe. He was out. Right. So Joe Flam won. Adrian was runner up, and then were Carrie and Joe and the other Joe mustache Joe in the? Was there like a final four and not a that final may have been three? The top four. It's interesting comparison. I, I found that to be one of the least inspiring finales and final groupings. That was when they had to ever. go all the way to altitude, right, to cook, and it was like, yes. oh, somebody's like a bunch of people's recipes didn't work out because they but, were, didn't adjust for altitude. But also, I think that these three cook just purely personality and cooking style. I think these three are much more compelling than those. I meant more just in terms of their distinct approaches, right? Right. Yeah. That, yeah, that was I, it. I mean, like, I definitely. I, I, de- I hear what you're saying. I was more. But like I think there was to- a moment in the middle of the season when Evelyn was crushing everything, and then when she made the curry dish, and they were like, "This is your signature dish," you know, like that energy going to the f- into the final. She'd be clubhouse leader. Buddha of two or three weeks ago, where it was just all clicking, you know, and he was winning soul food challenges, which is insane. Uh, he would have been positioned to win. Yes, but but Sarah's, you know, tough, tough mutter climb up from the underworld much like with Kristen and much like with Brooke, like it's wild. You cannot discount that. 
the way that she cooked these last two weeks is just like like she blacks out. Yeah. It's it's pretty cool. It looks like a really interesting finale repairs there. Like it looks like they've got some interesting sous chefs working with them and interesting like assistant. I can't tell if they're famous people are cooking with them or if it's like other top chefs from the season or. The one thing that gave me pause, and this is, we obviously we'll see the episode and we'll talk about it next week. But the one thing that gave me slight pause was just all the, in the next week on, this I'm talking about. Yeah. It seemed to be overweighting. And maybe this was intentional. Buddha. Buddha and the prep and his ability to show up and bring all these things and dazzle and that they kept they actually did something they rarely do which they seem to just show a complete dish by him the he was central about park the changing dish. of the yeah. foliage yeah and then they showed it plating and they showed like repair weeping that probably all seems like a misdirect but it was interesting the way they described the finale just like cook your best with the stuff you brought that would seem to give him an advantage yeah I agree so who, we'll who, see who next week who do you, who do you think is going to win just because of the, of the finale cut uh, with the scenes from next week and the way it's just like it's Buddha, I don't. I think it's Evelyn. I got Evelyn too. Okay. I, I just um, think she's she's the most consistent. Also, so if there's variance on either side, Sarah pours more than ice cream on herself. Buddha overthinks something. Yeah. Evelyn doesn't make those kinds of mistakes. That was tough when it was like one person's ice cream melted, the other ice creams was too cold. Which I guess I didn't really think about ice cream being too cold. That was some real Goldilocks shit. Greenwald, great conversation with you today. Thanks for doing this on a Friday. I hope everybody enjoyed Obi-Wan. I hope everybody enjoys Stranger Things and Top Gun and the uh, Eastern Conference Finals and a long weekend. We all deserve it. Thank you to Kaya McMullen for uh, producing. And hey, if you haven't watched We Own the City yet, you Please should watch so. it. The finale's yeah. on Monday. It's probably our favorite show of the year. And then you can listen to Monday's podcast and you'll love it because we spoil the show and talk about it. With That's Jordan. right. <laughs> uh, we'll talk to you guys next Monday, but also we'll be back Thursday. Have a great long weekend. Great season.